Hello, my fellow sovereigns. I am so excited to be here with you on another special guest episode of The Princess and the Bee with my guest today, Thais Gibson. She is an author, speaker, and co-creator of the Personal Development School. She is extremely passionate about personal growth. We got along just fine. The the subconscious mind and connecting with others. Um, like this girl's, this girl's, this is this this is a woman after my own heart for sure. With an MA and over 13 different certifications ranging from CBT to hypnosis, Thais strives to continuously learn and grow. She is best known for her contributing work and research on attachment theory and the impact of attachment trauma on our adult romantic relationships. She overlaps attachment trauma challenges with personal core wounds, limiting beliefs, and emotional patterns at the subconscious level to give us a deeper insight into ourselves and our relationship. Her book, The Attachment Theory Guide, was written on this topic and her YouTube channel often focuses on educating people on how to subconsciously reprogram this specific area of their lives. After overcoming her own challenges with addiction in her early years, Thais is profoundly determined to educate people on how they can reprogram painful or limiting programs in their own mind. She is focused on helping people retrain their brain to achieve relationship fulfillment, abundance, and personal freedom in their lives. Now, my favorite part about this episode, aside from getting radically nerdy about the subconscious mind, were also the practical, tactile tips that Thais gives. Like, you are going to walk away from this episode with specific tangible action steps that you can start putting into practice to start reprogramming your subconscious mind because sometimes that can feel like a very elusive topic. It can feel like this out of reach thing. It's this thing that controls 95 to 97% of our programming and yet how do we do it? How do we actually specifically retrain our brain and rewire these habits that maybe we're not even aware of yet? And that's what I love about this episode is Thais goes into not only theory, but practical application that you can actually do as soon as you get off this episode. So there is a very specific doing that you can do right after this episode, as well as take Thais's attachment theory quiz so that you can find out what type of attachment style you have. Because as I always say, everything in life is a relationship and we're relating to everything. And how we attach ourselves in a relationship is a powerful understanding when you have that knowledge of how you specifically go about attaching yourself in a relationship. This relationship that you have, it, it, is, it doesn't just apply to your personal relationships or your relationship with your life partner, but it applies to the relationship that you have with your business. How do you attach yourself to the relationship that you have with money? Like these are all ways in which your attachment style can play into how you relate to the rest of the world. And with that being said, I give you Thais Gibson. Welcome to the Princess and the Bee podcast, the place to be to build your empire as queen of your body, business, and life. I'm your host, Kimberly Spencer, founder of crownyourself.com, and I'm an award-winning coach, Amazon best-selling author, and multi-passionate entrepreneur. Each week, I give you the systems, strategies, and success stories to help you master your mindset, communicate with ease, and triple your productivity so you make the income and the impact you deserve. 
Imagine this podcast as your weekly spark of inspiration as you take it to the next level with all the bees of your life, body, business, bank account, boys and babies. Let's make it rain. Hello, hello, and welcome back to another episode of The Princess and the Bee. And with me, I have Thais Gibson, founder of the Personal Development School, and she is an expert in attachment trauma. I am so excited to have you here, Thais. Thank you so much for coming on. And let me just say, you look like a princess today, actually a queen, quite frankly. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here with you. So you specialize in attachment trauma and I'll admit my husband is a bit of a sci-fi nerd and so he's been like it was his birthday recently and so we were watching some of the Star Wars and he there's one line there's so many good one-liners from that movie the all those movies where there's where as a Jedi they say attachment leads to the root of the suffering and and dark side And so that's why I was curious, especially to have you on, I was like perfect timing because to talk about attachment, what is attachment trauma as an, and is it ever possible to not actually be attached? Yes. Okay. So this is a great question. I think there's two different types of attachment that might be that people often refer to. So there is like from a Buddhist perspective, there's like healthy non-attachment, which means like we don't attach and and use the mind to identify our sense of self with other things. And then we have like attachment trauma from like John Bowlby's work and attachment theory. So I just want to make that explanation like, you know, separate. So, so, um, cause I think people can get them mixed up. So in like, let's say we talk about attachment from a Buddhist perspective, often what happens is the mind as it comes into the world identifies with things right we identify with our own thoughts with our own emotions we identify with our beliefs our ideas and then we also identify with things in our environment and a really good example to illustrate this is I can remember being a child and and getting in trouble when I was like a little kid and my parents throwing out this like little tiny like pink toy car that I had in the garbage and I remember like holding the garbage. It was like the bathroom garbage. I remember like holding it and just like sobbing over the bathroom garbage. And, and it's like, it, you know, (laughs) I was like crying my eyes out and really like, I probably could have just reached into the bathroom garbage and taken out the car, but it's a really good example of like, we'll see children a lot of the time attached to their toys that we come to identify our sense of self. And, you know, as, as a mind going into the world and trying to figure out how to navigate it. And as we go through socialization and classical conditioning, we try to insulate ourselves. The subconscious strategy to insulate ourselves by attaching and identifying with things or people. And then of course, in our adult lives, that can extend to the house I live in, the car I drive, the job I have, you know, the mind's still doing the same thing and it's adult versions. We identify. And then when we have a loss, we feel like we're losing a part of ourselves. And that's why I think loss can be so challenging because we've come to identify with these things. So that's like attachment from the Buddhist perspective. And then we have like attachment theory and attachment trauma which is originally John Bowlby's work. And, um, you know, we've done a lot of research to sort of update a lot of ideas and, and paradigms. And basically the idea of attachment trauma is that the way that we attach to our caregivers, the, the type of relationship we build and basically the subconscious rules we learn for how to relate to other people, those then determine our adult romantic relationships. And you can think of people who have different subconscious rules that they use for how to relate to other people as being really similar to like you play a board game with people 
you sit down, you're trying to play the same game, but you have a different set of rules for how you're playing the game. And it just creates all this unnecessary friction and challenges. So attachment theory is basically the theory behind how we learn to attach to other people, connect with them, relate to them, and how this basically affects our lives because it affects our romantic relationships, our friendships, our working relationships, so on and so forth. I love that because especially that you address the rules, because that's one thing that I address with uh, so many of my clients and so many of my listeners is these subconscious rules that we, we create. And so often our rules for what we don't want are really simple versus our rules for what we do want tend to be quite complicated. Like he has to have this, or uh, I, I see it in, in the body or in business, like, oh, if I achieve X amount of dollars and then I do this, then I'll label myself as a success versus I am a success right now as I am with what I've accomplished. And so the, instead it leads to this, always this desire to continue chasing something rather than actually being present with where you're at. So when it comes to relationships, how do you see it play out? Because I know you have, there's a few on your website, there's a few different types of attachments that you have found. So how do you see that attachment to an identity play out in yeah. relationships? So, so we have four different attachment styles. Um, and the first one is secure. And this is obviously like what we all want to be. Um, and, and, you know, do the work to become if, if you haven't already sort of thing. And, um, and so the secure individual, basically in their childhood, they learn that they are worthy of love. And this is because they get lots of eye contact made. And I mean, like early, early childhood, they get loved for being just who they are. And, and, you know, in sort of a more unconditional manner, not for like what they do, the punishment reward system usually isn't installed sort of towards that child in such an intense way. So they don't feel like I always have to earn the reward or I'm always fearing the punishment. Like you might, if you have like a really authoritarian parenting style, for example, where they're very strict and they are very punishment reward oriented. So basically this child grows up to learn that, you know, and they also feel it's safe being vulnerable with their caregivers. So they basically grow up to learn like my feelings matter. I'm worthy of love for being who I am. It's safe to communicate my needs because I have a supportive caregiver or set of caregivers. And then they basically trust people more easily. They feel safe being vulnerable more easily. So obviously that type of programming is going to take people into a relationship dynamic in their adult lives where they like can really connect and have healthier relationships. So that's our like one securely attached individual. And then we have three insecure attachment styles. And so one attachment style is sort of at one end of the continuum is the dismissive avoidant. And the dismissive avoidant child usually goes through some form of emotional neglect. And it can be like actual like physical neglect as well, where like they don't have food, they don't, you know, poor hygiene, they don't have like caregivers looking out for them, anything like that. Or it can just be that they have all their basic needs met, but they have really emotionally unavailable caregivers. And so basically this child, it goes through this whole like season of childhood going, well, vulnerability doesn't feel good because when I express my emotions, nobody's here to like connect with me over that. Nobody's here to hold space for that. And I can't really trust myself to be connecting and vulnerable to other people. So closeness doesn't feel good. Emotional intimacy doesn't feel good. It just makes me feel rejected. And a child mind can't go, oh, my parents are emotionally unavailable. So they go, oh, there must be something wrong with me that my caregivers are not showing up. 
so this child basically grows up in their adult life. And these are the people that we see who are like afraid of commitment, don't want to settle down, slow to warm up, kind of have their walls up or their guard up all the time. You know, as relationships get serious, they like head for the hills. Like these, this is because this person has a whole bunch of subconscious programs from an early age that provide, like create the sort of reality that they reality filter, they see the world through. So that's like dismissive avoidance. And then the other end of the attachment continuum is our anxious preoccupied. And anxious preoccupied individuals basically have the exact opposite. They have like lots of good emotional associations. They feel really good connecting, but there's some kind of inconsistency with their caregivers that creates a perceived abandonment. And it can be that like one caregiver is really warm and loving and the other's cold, or it could be that both caregivers are really warm, but they work a lot. And so basically this child grows up and they go, well, I really want connection. I'm always hungering for connection, but it's inconsistent and I'm always fearing abandonment. And so they're always wanting more emotional closeness, more connection, always fearing abandonment, fearing not being good enough, being rejected. And then of course, like these two people in relationships often end up with each other, right? Where one person wants close, wants closeness, the other person's like, stay away from me. I don't want closeness. And then very last one is fearful avoidant. And they sort of have both ends of the attachment continuum. They have the anxious side where they feel afraid of rejection, abandonment, they fear not being good enough, but they also have the dismissive side where they fear closeness and commitment and connection, but most so they have trust wounds and they feel unworthy of love at their core. And this is because this individual usually grows up in a more traumatic childhood. So usually they'll have like, you know, physical abuse or verbal abuse in the, in the home, lots of fighting, lots of volatility, maybe a parent's an addict and and basically they grow up and they feel like I want love. I want closeness. And sometimes it's good, but sometimes it's really scary and unpredictable. So if you just imagine like, uh, let's say a parent is an alcoholic and it's like, sometimes mom is loving. Sometimes mom is drinking and she's really nice. Sometimes mom is drinking and she's really mean. Sometimes I can't tell if mom's drinking or not. And so this child learns that they want closeness, but they can never trust it and they can't understand it. And so they're constantly sort of oscillating between wanting closeness, fearing it, wanting to trust, not thinking they can. And this is a huge part of their attachment style. And in their adult lives, they're like the hot and cold partner, the person who is emotionally available. And then you get close and they're like, no, no, go away. And then you move back and they're like, wait, come back. And it's like this sort of push pull dynamic. So those are four main attachment styles and sort of where they come from. So with those attachment styles, how do we navigate to shift into a healthy dynamic of a relationship? Like how, do, what is what is a strategy that we can do to start stripping away from that, that childhood programming of how we were raised? Because I know a lot of people listening to this podcast have more of the three more unhealthy types. I know for me, I definitely grew up with an addict and that was my experience. The, the last one was the, the not sure which person was coming home. Mm. And so waiting through, there, there's a constant pattern that I have dealt with all my life of waiting for that other shoe to drop. And whenever I see that pattern reemerge, I'm like, oh, there it is again. <laughs> like there's that, yeah. there's yeah. that one again. So how do we start stripping those, those beliefs away so that they don't impact our personal relationships in the future? Great question. So there, there are three main things we really need to do. 
um, internally first. And then we need to bring those three things into our relationship dynamics second. So the first thing is we have to do like a belief dump. Like what are all of our beliefs about people, about relationships, about trust, about closeness? And we have to really look. And, and a lot of these beliefs are situated around core wounds. So we want to look at like what our major core wounds are. So for anxious, it's obviously like fear of abandonment, rejection, not good enough. Fear of being alone a lot of the time, fear of being unsafe if they're alone. Um, fear of being disliked, excluded, you know, a lot of wounds revolving around people. For the dismissive, their major wounds are like, I'm going to be trapped in a relationship, I'll be helpless, powerless, vulnerability is unsafe, um, or I am defective, like something's wrong with me at my core that I couldn't get what I needed in childhood. And then fearful avoidance basically carry both, both sides, which is obviously more challenging. I was a fearful avoidant myself. So I relate that's, that's the parent with the, uh, you know, addiction or, or, you know, challenges in the home, things like that. There can be many different reasons. Um, and, and so they'll carry both of those, but then the biggest ones are, I will be betrayed, um, or I am unworthy. And so fearful avoidance have this huge pattern of like trying to earn their worth in the world, um, or trying to like, always kind of like being hypervigilant, like really noticing like micro expressions, body language, all that kind of stuff. If there's a shift in the pattern, and like you know right away so what we have to basically do is reprogram those beliefs first and and come not to a place where like then we we're trying to trust everybody with our lives and our money and our bank account and you know like the idea isn't to like be at the exact opposite end but it's to return to like a fair and balanced state where we are open-minded we can trust we can be open to connection but we can be cautious too and we can pay attention to red flags and so basically we have to do belief equilibration and this really means like those stories we have, we have to reprogram at the subconscious level. And, you know, that's its own whole topic. And maybe I can share some tools for that later on, but that's a huge first part is like changing those beliefs because our subconscious mind is programmed with those beliefs. And we can think of our subconscious mind as being like our filter we see the world through. And so if we go through the world thinking that we can't trust people, you know, that's, that's a heavy belief to be carrying. And that's going to have a big impact on the way we connect to people, how harmonious our relationships are, the level of intimacy we have in relationships, like all these different things are going to be affected. So though first we identify our major beliefs and we reprogram them. The second thing is we have to learn what our needs are as people. And it's so interesting because I find that a lot of people will do the belief work, but they won't do the needs work and they won't know like what they need from relationships, from the relationship to themselves, right? You know, because if we don't know what we need from us, how can we then try to go communicate it to somebody else or share that we have those needs? So we have to get really good at understanding like, do I want harmonious relationships? Do I want passion in my relationships? Do I want a lot of like deep love and connection? Do I want vulnerability? Do I want consistency and safety? Like what are the things in general that I prioritize in terms of how I connect to others and what I need from other people? Maybe I want to feel seen and heard. Maybe I want to feel really close. Maybe, you know, so we have to get clear about what we need and bring that to the table because otherwise we play the mind reading game and we're like, they should know my needs. And when they don't, we punish them or we withdraw or we get mad or, you know, all these different things. never do. Like <laughs> nobody else's job to read our mind. I had one client and she told me that she wanted a multi-million dollar business by the time she was 38 months before she ever told her husband. And I was like, girl, compartmentalizing is not going to solve yes. getting into it. And as soon as she had that courageous conversation with her partner, it changed the game for a, she realized how judgmental she was being about her partner uh, preconceiving what she thought his reaction, reaction would be. Yeah. 
yeah. versus allowing for just having the courage to have that that candid conversation and 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 say what it was that she needed like that was one of the things that got me my husband because I said if you want to be with me you gotta you gotta want kids and he was like with you I could see having kids and I said great let's name them so <laughs> <laughs> but that's so beautiful and so powerful and such an important part of like the whole dynamic. And so it, it really changed the dynamic for our relationship because our relationship has for, for the relationship I have with my husband is different than any of my past relationships that very much mirrored attachment and childhood issues. Um, but this one, it's, it's always been grounded in complete candor and honesty and just being able to say the needs of what, what it is that I need and not feeling shame or guilt or fear that I'm not going to have them met and allowing for that trust. And it did take time to rebuild that and to build that into our relationship. So I total, I love the fact that you, you address saying what we need because so often more so as women, have you found in your practice that women tend to hold back on what we, we need on saying what it is that we need? Yes, of course. And and the third, like when we were saying those like three things, the third thing is like boundaries and being able to actually say not just like what we need, but also what we're okay with and not okay with in our relationship dynamics. And like, we have to be able to bring this up and have these conversations. And I would definitely say there's a pattern, like obviously with women and the way we're socialized and, you know, like sort of to be more people pleasing and to be good and be a good girl and, you know, and all the pressure in so many different ways. Absolutely. Um, but like the, the analogy I have to give to people is it's like if you have a friend following you around all day telling you oh give up your needs oh everybody else's needs are more important oh it's fine I know you really need time alone right now but like your friends family they need you more I know you haven't had time alone in three days but like just who cares like suck it up you're gonna be fine like you would be like this person is like haunting me like and and this person's making me feel really unworthy and like I don't matter and so we have to be clear that the way we operate in, in relationship to our own needs and our own boundaries is, are we making ourselves worthy? Are we making ourselves matter? And if we're not, you can guarantee those are also going to be the exact same triggers you have in your relationship. Like, oh, I don't matter. I don't feel worthy from my partner. And so we go through this like fractured internal relationship to self and then we project it onto our romantic or friends or what, you know, whatever relationships we have. And then we get triggered and we're in this like funny cycle, but it all starts with healing that internal relationship to self. And I've also seen it play out, not just in personal relationships, but also in the relationships that we have, like with our business or with our money, because everything in life is a relationship. And so we're all like, I, I've told business owners when they're putting all this effort and energy into a business that's not producing income, because they're doing what I call productive procrastination, where they're focusing on all the nice, busy fluff stuff of, of courting a business, but not actually getting down to business and making mm -hmm. sales. Mm -hmm. um, the business in the relationship is not reciprocating the, the love, the energy, the effort. And so imagine putting in all of your, your time and energy and resources into a relationship where they were just like, yeah, you know, maybe I'll, maybe I'll say hi to you. Maybe I'll shoot you a text from time to time. Like you would, you would after a while, eventually be like, I'm not getting anything out of this relationship. And so that's, it's interesting. Have you, how have you applied this, uh, the relationship dynamics into other areas? 
Yeah, I would say the beliefs we carry as a whole. So basically like what we've created is what I've created, I guess, is integrated attachment theory. So this idea that like every single attachment style has specific core wounds, specific needs that they want in a relationship, specific love languages associated with each style. And then basically different ways um, that they give and receive love and different expectations they carry as a whole that they may not be consciously aware of. And so like when we take somebody's attachments and we break it down, those five things are like exactly what's spilled into every single one of the seven areas of life. So those, you know, your core wounds or your fears, what you need, like that's going to show up in your work environment. That's going to show up in the way you interact with your coworkers. So it shows up in every one of your seven areas of life. And it's interesting because we'll even say like, let's say somebody is going, oh, like I'm not good enough or I'm unsafe. Let's say those are their core beliefs. That's going to show up in like how they feel at the gym. Like that's going to show up in, in how they cope with their eating. Like all these different dynamics really boil down to like, they're pervasive. There are programs at the subconscious level. And so it's so important that we can like identify those patterns and then take inventory and kind of audit them and go like, what's working for me? Are these things helping me? Or what are the things I need to reprogram? Because some of them are good. You know, like fearful avoidance are usually like, you know, very driven, very ambitious, you know, there's lots of really good stuff. It's part of it's because like, they're trying to earn their safety in the world um, and they don't trust and rely on other people. So they have to do it all themselves. Like sometimes it comes from a wounded place, but it produces a good outcome. As long as we keep that in check, as long as then we don't like spend 95 hours a week working because we feel like we're unsafe all the time. So it's really about like auditing, seeing where you're at with those specific things and then actually doing the work around what's not serving you. And that will spill just like it will, you know, the, the belief is affecting you in all areas of life. Reprogramming and working on those things will also affect you in a positive way in all the areas of life. Amen, sister. Because I, I have seen that. I love that you said that they, that even though these are not unhealthy, but different types of attachments, like these not the super healthy attachments, they still have served a purpose, yes, but yes. what got you here won't get you there. And so how do you, how to move? Because eventually that subconscious success strategy, it served you, but I've seen a lot of, uh, many of my clients have gotten to a point where they get, they've used that, that fearful avoidance strategy that's been able to get, give them that drive. It's been able to give them that motivation, but then they get to a place of comfort and then they freak out and they're like, what the F is wrong? When's the other shoe going to drop? And either they create self and sort of self-sabotage their own peace and their own peace of mind and their own happiness, or they, um, certain external circumstances happen consciously or unconsciously that somehow affects the business or their relationships that cause it to then go back into that place of chaos and familiarity. So how do we pre prevent that sort of using a, a pattern that served us? How do we shift it in order to be a different longer term strategy that can serve us beyond where once we've gotten to a space of peace and harmony and and happiness yeah it's a great question so so like one thing that's really interesting is we talk about self-sabotage and there's no actual like such thing as self-sabotage everything is just a subconscious strategy to get different needs met other than what your conscious mind intends so for example like you could let's say bob bob could go 
I, you know, um, I'm at peace. I can't believe I feel peaceful. I can't believe I'm so happy in a relationship and he's used to chaos. And then his, let's say his subconscious mind starts creating these thoughts from previously programmed patterns and goes, this can't last. This is scary. I, I don't believe, you know, something bad's probably happening. And then Bob can't handle that uncertainty because he truly believes at his core that the other shoe's going to drop. So then all of a sudden Bob actually is self-sabotaging because his quote unquote self-sabotage strategy is actually just trying to get him safety right? It's like, oh, if I can just know when the bad thing's going to happen, if I can just predict it, or if I can just get back into my comfort zone where it's familiar, then I'm safe. And so his conscious mind is like, no, I want the healthy, healthy, happy relationship. His subconscious mind is like, we just want the familiar life. So, so it's, so self-sabotage is your conscious and subconscious being on separate pages, essentially. But what we have to recognize is that like all the things that we adapt or adopt because of challenges we go through in, in life, all of those patterns that we use to try to survive and like navigate the world, sometimes those can be strengths, but like everything is a strength until it becomes a weakness, right? Like everything can work. We can go, I feel unsafe. So I'm going to work a hundred hours a week until 20 years later, you have a heart attack or, you know, God forbid, but like until we have the negative ramifications. So the ideal space we're actually trying to get into is to become aware of all of our own patterns, to become disidentified from them, not always just acting through them, like through the programming of them. And be able to recognize when we're out of balance and then pick and choose from our conscious perspective what a healthier strategy is. So maybe working 100 hours, really, you have no choice if you're just starting a huge startup company with a ton of employees. And maybe you have to like really crank out that much work for like three, six months, but you have to be able to get to that point where you go, okay, I see that that has been serving, but we have to constantly audit and self-observe and then go, okay, now what do I need in this next stage for where I'm going? And so a huge part of how we get there as well is through intentionality, right? Like, where am I at? What do I want next? And then are my current programs the best way of getting there? Or do I need to reprogram things within me to provide a different output? And until we get really good at observing ourselves, and that's why things like meditation come in handy, journaling, self-work, because it's putting us in reflection. And until we get good at being self-reflective, we don't even have the opportunity to go, oh, what programs are serving and what are not? And how do I then do the reprogramming work to move me in a different direction so I can get to the next level of life? So it's sort of this like intricate little thing happening beneath the surface there, but it's, it's such an important topic that you're raising. So how did you move from that space of being in attachment and from how you grew up into where you are now? Um, <laughs> lots of work. Um, I mean, like I was really going through a hard time when I started this work. So I was actually addicted to opiates. Um, uh, got addicted at 14 after a knee surgery. I was like an athlete, played D1 soccer and all that stuff. And, and um, yeah, I was like a high functional addict, did rehab, did a whole bunch of stuff, didn't work. Um, AA meetings, NA meetings, like I had a lot of work to do on myself. And I went through a lot of traumas in childhood. Like if we write the list of all the big traumas, I went through, you know, the vast majority of them. And, and so I had a lot of work to do and a lot of stuff to figure out. And to be quite honest, like I, I probably was like a more extreme version of this. This isn't like what I would recommend for everybody, but I hit like a really big rock bottom and I didn't really have anywhere to go, but up or like, you know, figure it out. And, and 
Um, and I came across this work definitely through like the grace of like God, like through somebody who was a mentor that like helped me with a bunch of stuff. And, and, you know, I was going to school and stuff at the same time, but I dropped out and then gone back this whole complicated situation, but I actually spent for like four years, um, straight, like meditating, like three and a half hours a day. Um, and basically not dating, not texting anybody, like literally nothing. And all of my focus was like healing the relationship to myself and like my sobriety and just like getting really, really rooted in that. Um, and so I was, I would like meditate for an hour and a half in the morning, an hour and a half to two hours in the evening. Um, I would go through and like journal all the time. And, and, and the very huge point at the beginning was just to observe. And like, I realized so much about, all these things that I had gone through in childhood, all these like painful things, I had become the internalized version of that in the relationship to myself. So just at a very high level, like if there was a lot of verbal abuse, let's say, oh, verbally abusing myself. If I experienced physical abuse, oh, physically hurting myself and my body in a variety of different ways. And I think we go through getting imprinted by all of these different life circumstances. And then like we talked about, we have a subconscious comfort zone and we work to maintain that because you know we've survived the whole time. And since our brain is so wired to just survive, we have to start getting really clear. Like what were the traumas we went through? What were the stories we made up about ourselves because of them? And what will all see is that we continue to retell those stories in the relationship to self. And that's the only way neuroplastically that they still even exist all this time later. And what were the biggest unmet needs we had in childhood? And, and how have we kept ourselves out of relationship to those needs? Because we also continue along that same trajectory. So for example, we see somebody emotionally neglected, they grow up, they're like the number one emotional neglectors of themselves, right? So we have to get clear about like what those things were and then work to really break those patterns so powerful. I think the, the assessing of the story is super huge as to how, and looking at, at all of those, cause I, I too had, there was a, a lot of abuse and there was trauma and things like that. And looking at the story and, and seeing how it can serve you and how it has served you to a point, how it's kept you safe. And then how if it's going to serve you in the future. And if it's not, it's not like you can go back in time and change the event, but how can you change the story around what you're saying that that event meant and the meaning that you're giving it? Absolutely. And, and that's how we store trauma period. Right. So, so research has showed that actually like the subjective interpretation of the trauma is actually significantly more impactful to us than the objective trauma itself, which is a pretty wild thing, but it makes sense when we just look at it, right? Like we hear people who went through a huge car accident and they're fine getting back, back in a car a week later. And then we hear people who were in a small car accident, but they're terrified for months. Right. So it's, we know that people have different interpretations and are affected differently. And it's, so we have to define like, what is our subjective interpretation? What are the stories we created out of that? And then how can we do that reprogramming work? And that's a huge part of how we heal. How did your training as an athlete, because I know you played, you played soccer. Um, how did your training as an athlete prepare you for the work that you're doing now? Since I know that a lot of times our childhood athleticism and the things that we're drawn to, it really plays in how we approach the work that we do later on in, in adult life. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I would say like, I 
I would say it's more like my programming <laughs> put me in the space of being an athlete. Like I definitely had a lot of pressure on myself as a child and definitely like a lot of like, you have to perform and you have to be good enough and you have to. So I think I had this like drive that was already there. That's probably why I was like successful at sports. And then that definitely carried into everything else. Um, but of course, like, you know, from that same sort of perspective from being an athlete, you learn to like really work hard and not give up. And it's funny. Cause I do remember like being in a, in a meeting, an AA meeting one time. And I think it was like 18 and this girl got up and she was like in her forties or fifties. And she's, she, you know, we get these like tokens or the poker chips for how far along you are in sobriety. And she was going like, oh, I'm, I'm on day 100. And like, this was such a hard day. And I remember thinking like, oh my God, I'm 18. How am I going to live like this? Like, I'm going to live like battling every day. And just thinking like, there has to be a better way. And I think one thing that I'm like, so grateful for is that like, you hear people say like, oh, you're going to be stuck like this for the rest of your life. Or people all these years later are still calling themselves an addict. And even though they've been sober 20 years, you know, and stuff like this. And I, I didn't believe in that. Like I really challenged that norm. And that's actually what led me to like the subconscious mind and learning how to reprogram, because if we can figure out how to reprogram and like what our, our subconscious is using as a strategy like, okay, I'm addicted to, I was addicted to painkillers. I'm addicted to painkillers. Why does my subconscious mind want painkillers? Oh, to numb pain, like to numb emotional pain to, okay. So what, uh, what pain am I numbing? What have I not resolved at a subconscious level and doing the work to understand and reprogram that for me, the absence of that was like, just, I don't, feel like I'm an addict. I don't struggle at all on a daily basis. Haven't for years and years. And, and so, you know, I, I think we have to be able to also challenge and question a lot of the norms and information we're getting, not saying that some of that stuff like abstinence isn't so important or things like that for people on their journey. And like, I don't like do painkillers anymore or anything like that, but like I, I did have my appendix removed and had to take painkillers and like, it was no problem. Like it was like a normal thing. And and, you know, so like, and there's no like, oh my gosh, I'm hooked after. So, you know, we can do that inside work deeply enough that we don't have to feel like we're still in any kind of place that we're stuck long-term, if that makes sense. It makes total sense because I was a bulimic for 10 years oh. and my, uh, my qualm with the eating disorder support community was that you're always considered to be in recovery. Yeah. And exactly. I didn't believe that. I was like, a caterpillar doesn't like a butterfly isn't questioning mm -hmm. if they're going to turn back into a caterpillar. Like there is a transformation that happens when you transform your identity on a cellular and soul level of this is, this is the new version of me. And so my perception of even going like when, um, I had a bit of morning sickness with my latest pregnancy and I'm like, how did I do this for 10 years? <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm just, how did I do this for 10 years? This is crazy because it, the thought of even going back, it's, it's such a foreign person. It's not even the same you. And so I totally agree and, and love challenging the perceptions that we're being, that a lot of society can propagate that we are always in recovery or that we're always going to be defined by this label that I was a bulimic or that it was, I was like, I haven't been bulimic for 10 years. I had bulimia. Yes. And it's, it's something that with, when I work with somebody who has addiction, I'm like, what if instead of being an addict, you had an addiction? Yes. Changing that language yes. 
is super powerful to be able to reframe and rewire. Cause I remember I had a client when I was pregnant with my first, uh, she said like, aren't you scared of like holding on to the baby weight? So I had a client who said, aren't you scared of holding on to the baby weight? And I, it, it literally just didn't register. The fear was not even present of the idea that I would even hold on to it. I was like, that's no. And it was because of the deep subconscious work that I had done to heal that relationship, that self-relationship that I had with my own body to be able to, to say, of course, I'm going to lose the baby weight. Like, the idea of holding 30 extra pounds is just, I'm unavailable for like, and, and so I love the fact that you address that you can challenge those, those perceptions. That is so beautiful. And that's true healing. It's like when you've gotten to the point where those things aren't even fears on your radar any longer, like, oh, and I sort of had the same experience. And you're not like, oh my gosh, I'm gonna have to take painkillers because I had my appendix out. You're like, oh, am I okay? How's my, you know, like, how's my body or, you know? And so it's, it's, I think that's so beautiful and, and so powerful because, and I also think when, when we're doing that work from the inside out first, you know, cause you're working with clients and all that, like, then you really have so much more to offer. And in terms of having been on both sides of the experience, which is so powerful. So looking at the, some tools that can reprogram the subconscious mind. What are some of your favorites? Cause I have, I have my favorites, so, but I'd love to hear yours. So um, what I love to do is I, I like to tell people that we have different places we can reprogram from. So there's literally like, I made a course and it's like 25 different reprogramming tools and there's so many, um, but we have different parts of ourselves that are functioning. So we have our beliefs right? And our beliefs are often producing thought patterns. So if I, for example, have this core belief that I'm not good enough, well, I probably believe that I'm not smart enough, not pretty enough, not funny enough, not interesting enough, right? So it's all the extensions. It's kind of like a tree trunk with its tree branches of not fill in the blank enough, right? And so we have that and we can reprogram at the belief level, but we can also reprogram at the thought level. We can work on not pretty enough, or we can work on not good enough, and then we also have our emotions, which we can do some equilibration work, but our emotions are sacred. There are feedback mechanisms and they're never lying to us. They're always telling us when we are either, you know, telling a painful story or when we have an unmet need and they're always good. So we don't want to like reprogram emotions too much. We can help ourselves if we're in anxiety or distress, we can regulate and equilibrate just at the emotional level, but then we have our actions and we can do a lot of amazing work at the action level too. And reprogram, like if we wouldn't take action towards something, how to actually use exposure response and move towards that thing. So I'll give a tool for, for um, belief reprogramming because it's so directly tied to thought reprogramming as well, since beliefs and thoughts sort of reflect one another. And then for action reprogramming. So how we can actually do work at the behavioral or action level um, for all the things that impact our mind and our well-being. 
So our belief reprogramming, one of my favorite tools is called auto suggestion. Um, it's super simple. Basically, uh, we want to get ourselves into a state where we're producing alpha or theta brainwaves. Um, and alpha and theta brainwaves are the brainwaves best used when you're hypnotized, right? So when, when, if anybody's ever heard of hypnosis or been hypnotized, like when you have all those visuals or all that, you know, you're taught to imagine things and count and walk backwards and all the sort of things that come in with the hypnosis scripts are literally there to help you get into a state where you're producing alpha and theta brainwaves. Now, what's interesting is that we are naturally producing more alpha and theta brainwaves in the first hour that we wake up and the last hour before we go to bed. So we're very suggestible at this time. And what we want to be able to do is during that time, when we are trying to work on a belief, so let's say the, the core belief is I will be rejected. We want to reframe it to its opposite. So we want to go, I will be accepted. But then if we just stop there and try to use an affirmation, it doesn't work so well because our subconscious mind doesn't speak language. It speaks emotion and imagery. So it'd be like me, like, and you sitting here and, and I speak Mandarin and you speak English and we're trying to talk, like we're not going to reach each other. And so we have to recognize that we have to get the reframe into emotion and imagery. And how we do this is we pick up memories because every memory is an image and every memory can, is colored with emotion. It contains emotion. So if we say, tell me your favorite childhood memory, close your eyes and you're going to see the memory and you're going to start smiling because that mo emotion is still stored. So this is what we do. We go, I will be rejected. Okay, what's the reframe? I will be accepted. And then we look for 10 to 15 pieces of evidence, which are basically memories for why we'll be accepted. And you could be, oh, because I'm a great friend. And because, you know, I have this wonderful friend who's accepting of me because I have this skill or tool that helps me connect with people, whatever it might be, you look for pieces of evidence that are basically these, these proofs. So we do 10 to 15 of those um, every single morning for about 21 days. And by that time period, we've, we've shifted and we've reprogrammed the subconscious. Research in, in neuroscience says it takes roughly 63 days for it to reach like our unconscious mind where it's like so deeply embedded, it's almost hard to come back from, um, but it's that simple. And so literally pick the belief you're working on, pick your reframe, and then 10 to 15 pieces of evidence or memory. Like I'm, I'm, if it's, I'm not good enough, I'm good enough because I have this, this award or this education or whatever. And each one of those things is a picture in your mind of you receiving the reward and, and all the emotion contained within that. So that's at the belief and thought level. Um, and then for our actions, we can use exposure response. So we can like basically drip to ourselves. If we're terrified of something, what's something we can do? Like, let's say we're trying to get from point A to point B. So we are trying to, let's say, overcome the fear of spiders. So, you know, through action, you're going to expose yourself incrementally to the spider every day. And then you're going to use your conscious mind to sort of reparent your subconscious mind and let yourself know I am safe. I'm okay. So maybe day one, let's say you're doing this with me and I'm your client. And let's say you put a spider on the table and like a glass cup. And first day I walk up to the the door and I look at the spider in the glass cup and maybe I'm phobic and I'm panicking and I have to let myself know I'm safe. Look, the spider can't hurt me. Can't do anything. I'm completely safe right now. I'm in control and I'm regulating myself while I'm exposing myself through action. And then maybe day two, I go up closer and day three, even closer. Maybe day three, we take the cup off the spider. And so each time we're working to expose ourselves through actions and then to let ourselves know we are okay, we're in control, we're safe, et cetera. And so um, those are two really great tools that are for like the starter pack of reprogramming that people tend to really understand quite, quite easily. 
Oh, and that starter pack, that action-based one is exactly how I reprogrammed my mindset with, from being bulimic. Like oh, that's amazing. that was exactly how, what I did. I would expose myself to certain scenarios that used to trigger me. Um, and I would put myself in that situation and I would get wildly uncomfortable. I'm, you know, maybe that would be eating until I was too full or eating a, a food that I thought had labeled as quote unquote bad. Um, and allowing myself to sit with the uncomfortability of like, oh, okay, what is my body? I, instead of judging myself and immediately going into those, those emotional reactions that would then lead into me purging. Uh, it was sitting with that uncomfortable. What was I really feeling when I was eating this? When, when, by when was I actually full? And allowing myself to question by sitting in those action steps. So that action step is super powerful. That's so beautiful. That's a really beautiful. It's it's so cool that like that's the work you did for yourself and and going through that. Yes, and I had no idea it was called that because I was. 22 and and just trying to figure Figuring out a way out. <laughs> just trying to figure out a way by trial and error because I just knew that the the way that was that had served me was not going to be continuing to serve me if I wanted to live a long and healthy life and so that that was the exact strategy that I used of just exposing myself to challenging instances into the triggers and to allowing myself to even indulge in the trigger not into the purging, sometimes into the purging, but then not judging it and then allowing it to be what it was and then saying, okay, what are the emotions that are coming up? What is happening? And that's how I did it, uh, reprogrammed my mindset within, I think it took about a year, wow. a year to two years to fully transform, but yeah. So I love the fact that you broke that down so, so beautifully. And so if there's a belief that any one of yours is struggling with, please, do that practice and do that exercise and, and work through it. It's, it's powerful. So I would love Thais to jump into a little bit of rapid fire to wrap this up. I have loved this conversation and you are just so knowledgeable. And I, I, I could, I could listen to you and just feed off of your brain all day. Like it is like, and not like a zombie, but <laughs> The Walking Dead. We're back to the Walking Dead. <laughs> We're back to the Walking Dead. Yeah. <laughs> so, so are you ready for a little bit of rapid fire to wrap this up? Absolutely. Cool. Who is your favorite female character in a book or a movie and why? Oh my goodness. Okay. So favorite. Oh my gosh. Okay. So I have to confess. I like hardly watch movies or books. I read like all like personal development books. It's like the the addict in me is like addicted to reading still a personal development. Let me think, will you name like some, some movies? I'm not going to do very well in the rapid fire. Childhood movies. <laughs> childhood movies. Okay. Um, oh my gosh. Okay. For sure. Childhood movie. I was obsessed with, um, did you ever see the movie called spirit? It was like this horse. It was a cartoon and the, the horse basically went through all of these like chaotic challenges like was like kidnapped and all these different things and basically the theme behind it is like he kept like 
coming through on the other side of different things and like showing up and persevering. And, and I definitely really identified with that character. Um, I think, cause I kind of went through a lot as a young child and definitely was like not prepared for any of it. And like, didn't know how to navigate and felt maybe a little bit alone and all of that as well, but felt like I kept like picking myself back up and figuring it out. And, and so that would be why. I love it. Yeah. Cause I go back to childhood and it's beauty and the beast and it's, I can always see the beauty and the potential in, in somebody, no matter what oh, I love that. way that they were behaving. I could always see, like, I, I can find a silver lining in pretty much everything. That's so, so I love that. So what woman would you want to trade places with just for a day? Okay, so favorite idea, like role model woman is literally be in their body, live in their brain, see how they think. I would, yeah, I would definitely say Byron Katie. Um, so huge teacher of mine. Like I read all of her stuff. There's a lot of familiar, like similarities between like CBT and Byron Katie to a certain degree, but I actually think she's probably as peaceful as they come. And, um, and I think, yeah, I just love, love, love her work. She has something called the work for people who aren't familiar I've read all of her books. Um, it's all about questioning your mind at like a very profound level. Um, and that is, yeah, a beautiful sort of place. To, so I'm sure living in her body and her mind for one day would be like absolute peace. <laughs> what would you define to be your kingdom? I would say my kingdom is my home. Um, it's so funny because I grew up in such an unstable home with a lot of craziness going on a lot. And, um, I have an amazing partner who's like so loving, so supportive. He's just been like an incredible person in my life. We have this peaceful home. And I honestly, at night, when I meditate before I go to sleep every night, I'm like, I receive, I accept that this is my life. (laughs) I'm like trying to make sure that I'm like always programming that I deserve and I'm worthy because it's so juxtaposed to how I grew up and I just have so much peace and harmony and safety at home. And, and so definitely my kingdom. What would be your number one personal development book recommendation? Um, I would say A Mind at Home with Itself by Byron Katie and a close second for anybody who's new to the personal development space, um, The Mastery of Love by Don Miguel Ruiz and a close third um, is The Untethered Soul by Michael Singer. Those are my top three books for sure. The Untethered Soul. I haven't read the other two, but The Untethered Soul just like just (laughs) opens you up to that like magic and miracles it is phenomenal um that literally was the book that i finished right before i moved to australia no way oh my goodness have you read the surrender experiment his other book not no great next book highly recommend it currently going through jay shetty's think like a monk oh is it good it's good it's good yeah like there it's he's got some interesting um like my favorite ones thus far is uh your location has has memory and so like the the place in which you meditate there's there's a reason if you go to a temple or if you go to a church that's been you know there for 500 years that there's a different energy and a different ease to prayer to meditation because location has memory and energy wow yeah it's very interesting yeah so how, if you were to have your success at twice the speed, how would you have done it differently? Oh my goodness. 
Um, I would have, I would have actually, so something that I had to do that was really hard for me to do, um, was to let go of my one-to-one client practice. Um, and I, so I started and I was so blessed and lucky. And again, like I kind of, am always trying to like practice accepting when things are good, as good as they are. And, and, um, I started my practice and this is, so this is like quite a few years ago, but, um, I had like a two-year wait list very quickly. And then basically felt guilty. I still had some boundary work to do as a person. I felt guilty, like saying no. So then instead of like, you know, keeping the wait list normal, I would just see extra people. And I was working like so much one-to-one and it got to the point where I was like, how, okay, like I can't trade my like time like this all the time to try to help people and serve people. How do I like really scale so that content and ideas and things that people can use can reach more people. And that's when I went online um, and started doing like the personal development school and the online courses. And, um, and I had to, I got to a point where the school got so busy so quickly that it was like, I have to actually let go of clients. Um, But then I learned to personalize things more for people and make sure that things were really informative. So I would have said twice as quickly, I would have done that a few years earlier. Um, and that was hard because there was that like sentimental value of seeing people. And I love talking to people and I love connecting and all these different things. Um, but ultimately, um, it made my life easier. It helps more people like all these different things long-term. So that's what I would say for sure. And lastly, how do you crown yourself? Um, I crown myself through being extremely kind to myself in my internal dialogue. It's like one of my number one rules at the end of the day, like we are not robots, we are human beings. And a huge thing I had to work on was like, I had the meanest internal dialogue to myself. And I'm convinced that like me using painkillers to numb pain was me numbing the pain from the voice in my head all day that was constantly creating negative thought patterns and then emotional reactions and then negative neurochemicals and just feeling like garbage. So um, I made a rule to myself going through like getting sober and, and that rule was, it doesn't matter what I do. I'm just going to treat myself like a human being. Like I would treat, like, I'm going to treat myself like I would treat a child who's in pain. And I have like honored that ever since. And I think that was one of the biggest things that showed up for me. And it also is beautiful because it allows you to be patient with other people, right? Like you see other people's mistakes differently. You see criticism differently. You're like, oh, is that true for me? Do I do that thing wrong? And we have room for that stuff. And so that is my way of crowning myself because it's my way of honoring myself and my healing and, and my life journey. Thais, how can we find you? How can we work with you? How can we go to the personal development school? Plug yourself, girl. <laughs> <laughs> So I put out um, free daily YouTube content um, at personal development school dash Thais Gibson. And then I have the personal development school itself, which is www.personaldevelopmentschool. I've written and, um, and recorded 40 different courses. Um, and they all come with like a 25 page workbook. And then I also do four live webinars a week with our community in there with all of our students. And then we've trained attachment coaches and they do six events a week that are like guided belief reprogramming exercises, guided morning and evening routines and meditations. And so there's like a whole just like ecosystem in there at this point. Um, and, and then Instagram is at personal development underscore school. Amazing. Thais, thank you so much for coming on. All the links will be posted below so that you can definitely check out her book, get into one of the 40 different courses. Holy moly, that is extraordinary. And to work with Thais and the amazing work that she is doing in this world. 
I hope you took notes. This is definitely a podcast to go back and re-listen to and take some more notes and actually put the action steps into practice. So with that being said, as always, own your throne, mind your business because your reign is now. Thank you so much for tuning in today. If what you heard resonated with you, be sure to subscribe and share your breakthroughs and ahas with me by leaving a review on iTunes so I can keep the magic flowing your way. And if you aren't already following us on social media, come experience the extra inspiration and queenly convos on Instagram at crownyourselfnow or visit our website at crownyourself.com. I am so excited to connect with you in the next episode. And in the meantime, go out there and create a body, business, and life that rules.